Welcome to the Rename Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show today, we have Sam. Hello, as always. Yeah, as always, this you are Sam. Uh, it's going to be a, a lean, mean show today. Sam and I are going to tackle uh, what's been going on in a fairly slow news week, but we've got some interesting things to talk about, I think. We're going to do a summer movie roundup, discuss uh, what I think has been a pretty lackluster summer. I think, Sam, you agree. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, and everything else this summer movie. And we're going to talk about the state of TV criticism, which has been sort of popping up in various think pieces and articles across the internet this week. Um, so stick with us throughout the hour. I think we're going to have a good show. Um, why don't we dive right into the news, Sam, and talk about the announcement that Jonathan Banks, uh, our, fan, our buddy Mike from Breaking Bad, is going to be a basically a regular on the season of Community. Is going to appear in eleven of the season's thirteen episodes as a criminology professor for the group. Uh, Sam, I assume you're a fan of this news. Uh, I am. I guess I am. I mean, this should Community's done like this type of stunt casting with you know cult superstars of of uh, you know popular dramas. They've already done this with Michael K. Williams, uh, so. They're kind of doing the exact same thing with Michael Banks, who everyone loves from Breaking Bad. So, yeah, this is good news. I think I think it's slightly different though, because I felt Michael K. Williams was vastly underused. They only had him for what, like three episodes, I think. So I feel yeah. like Jonathan Banks will actually have time to develop a character, uh, which is something I'm looking forward to. Right, and he's already done Parks and Rec, so he's really making the rounds on NBC. Hopefully, he will do. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the NBC comedies are anymore. He could do Sean Saves the World. What the hell is Sean Saves the, the World? Sean Hayes show. Yeah. I literally had no idea of his existence. Sean Hayes has right a new now. show. It's going to be on, I believe it's on NBC Thursdays this year. Um, from the looks what of it, it's going to be terrible. What are the NBC shows next year? It's, it's Parks and Rec and Community and Sean Saves the World and something else. Yeah, the Michael J. Fox show. Ah, yes, the Michael J. Fox show. Yeah. That will be interesting. Yeah. Or terrible. I mean, well. Knowing NBC, it's, it's like, got, we're going like, broader, it's, we're it's going dumber. It's got Betsy Brandt. I feel like there's no way it's going to be terrible. It might not be amazing. You don't know that, though. <laughs> I don't. Um, but I like the two main people involved in it. Um, sure. And I imagine that if Michael J. Fox is doing a TV show, he probably is not just going to do whatever, you know. He's been bouncing around as a, as a guest star on a lot of shows I quite like, including The Good Wife, who, where he is amazing for years now. I feel like he could have had a TV show for a long time if he's finally sitting down for one. Maybe it's because it's good. It's not necessarily true, obviously. A lot of people I like have done a lot of terrible television in the past, but I have I have much higher hopes for the Michael J. Fox show than I do for Sean Saves the World. Let's put it that way. Well, I've just read the premise for Sean Saves the World. The premise is, Sean is a divorced gay father with a successful yet demanding career. When his 14-year-old daughter moves in with him full-time, uh-oh, he's forced to juggle his work life, his pushy mom, and trying to be the best father ever. Determined not to give life a half-hearted attempt, he reads up on parenting and about keeping a vibrant family alongside a thriving career. However, sudden work pressures dampen his grand family plans and skew his work-life balance. Sean's attempt to balance life will form the heart of the series. So basically, Jordan, are we ready for it all? Are we ready for such groundbreaking television? I've seen. There's been some footage released. There's a. It's not really a trailer, but like a clip that was released of it. Sure. Um, a couple, maybe a month or so ago now, and it looked fucking terrible like um i watched it and i was like groaning and like you know it, it was it was a sort of bad television that made me like angry and sad at the same time in like 60 seconds so i i would not classify myself as ready for the groundbreaking television that will be sean saves the world um uh, but it's gonna be a thing so maybe maybe jonathan banks after his 11 community episodes will uh maybe he could play sean's distant father who's not okay with sean being gay uh, I feel like that's a role he could play and probably a role that Sean Saves the World will have at some point. Um, maybe he could play Michael J. Fox's, uh, I don't know, crazy uncle. Ooh, he could play Betsy Brandt's father. That would be fun, right? Oh, yeah, total crossover. He'd be like, you look very familiar, except she wouldn't because I don't think Mike and Marie ever got anywhere near each other on Breaking Bad. I think that's true, yeah. So they wouldn't really know each other. It would be better if Marie was like in witness protection or something and... I had another crazy Sam theory about the Michael J. Fox show just being a spinoff of Breaking Bad. That's I imagine that's going to happen anyway. If if Mike shows up, it'll suddenly the Michael J. Fox <laughs> will become much more interesting to you because it's like a Breaking Bad crossover uh, spinoff in secret. 
like most most tv that you watch is more interesting to you when you've made up a crackpot theory about it i think well you know when your shows are really really shitty i have to like sam larry in brazil i have to depart into a dreamlike state sam's gotta butter his bread somehow folks yeah um but anyway yeah jonathan banks is gonna be there maybe maybe he'll fill the donald glover hole maybe he and abed will be best friends this season what do you think of the chances of that (laughs) i mean i don't like the whole thing about donald glover not really being on the show it's great that he like wants to like focus more on his music career, but I really, I like Donald Glover the actor more. Um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of sad. I feel like I feel like Community, even though it's great that Dan Harmon's back, I feel like its days are still numbered, even though that shows that shows days have been numbered. I think since the end of season one. Yeah. Um, I mean that show in in a way I think that show was sort of the Walter White of television, and that like when when it started it was like <laughs> this thing is dead soon. Uh, and it's still soldiered on far past whatever anyone thought uh, for better and in, in a lot of ways worse. <laughs> right. Like if Community had ended at the end of season three, I think we might all be living in a better world right now. And by we might all be living in a better world, I mean you and I wouldn't have had to deal with season four of Community and the specious uh, quality of season five, which I hope will be awesome. But I don't know. I'd also be curious what what the NBC Thursday night lineup would look like. It would it would be total turnover. I mean, Parks and Rec would still be there, but Parks and Rec would probably be anchoring it, which it is anyway. I think at the beginning, right? Because Community is not coming back in the fall, so we are still missing a show. What's the fourth show in the in the NBC lineup? I have no idea. I'm gonna find out Whitney's right now. Whitney's dead. <laughs> Whitney's dead. That Remember when Whitney replaced, than replaced Parks and Rec on the schedule? That was upsetting. And it replaced Parks and Rec when, it, when Parks and Rec was, like, in its prime. Let me see if there's an outline of 2013. Thank you, Google. Let's see what's we, what we got. There's a show called Thank You, Google. Is it a spinoff from <laughs> the internship? Uh, I would not watch it if it was. No, I'm thanking Google for showing this. Thursday nights will kick off with Parks and Rec. Uh, welcome to the family. I don't know what that is. Sam, find out what Welcome to the Family is. All we're right, I'm well, on it. We're talking about, we're talking Computer, about Jonathan Banks, but family. we're really talking about NBC Thursdays in general right now, I guess. Um, yeah, you got Parks and Rec, Welcome to the Family, Sean Saves the World, then the Michael J. Fox Show, which I have no idea why Michael J. Fox Show is at 9.30 after Sean Saves the World at 9, when it's clear to me the Michael J. Fox Show should be the anchor. But whatever, I don't run NBC, and everyone that does is, is you know, a fool, so that's not surprising to me. Oh boy, you're gonna like this one. <laughs> Welcome to the Family's premise. The series follows the class of cultures when Junior, the son of a Latino family, Uh and Molly, the daughter of a Caucasian family, fall in love. Uh oh. After discovering that. Groundbreaking television from 1970. Yeah. After discovering that Molly is pregnant, uh oh. Uh oh. The pair decide to get married. Uh oh, again, I guess. Forcing a bonding and blending of their two very different families. One of them is Latino. The other one's white. Jordan, are you ready for a, a race war on <laughs> on, on NBC? The Eight dream of Charles Manson finally comes true this fall on NBC. <laughs> I feel like Welcome to the Family is roughly all in the family, in title, in premise, in everything. And it's been like 40 years since All in the Family. So glad to see NBC is so progressive. It's a single camera comedy. Which is surprising. Um, I'm trying to figure out who created the show. I feel like if uh, next for NBC we see a, a show about a, a single girl just trying to make it in a big city, um, and she doesn't need a man, that would be that would be shocking. You know, we could we could revamp Mary Tyler Moore. Maybe NBC is just gonna like pretend it's the 70s again and just make a bunch of like progressive for the 70s television for a while. Look, I'm just waiting for NBC to have a show about an astronaut who finds a genie bottle and the genie becomes his kind of wife. His kind of wife? I don't remember. Was genie his wife on the show? Were they lovers? They had a a bit of will they, won't they. Um, But as I recall, I haven't seen I Dream of Genie since Nick at Night used to run those marathons. But as I recall... I used to really like it. Genie, Genie, and the astronaut never got together. If they did, it was probably later seasons. Let's see. Why not? Why don't we figure this out? Because our viewers, our listeners, rather, they have to know this sort of thing. That's why they tune into the Review Your Name podcast. They are curious. Did Genie ever end up with? Uh, I don't. Even, was it Mike? I don't know. 
So I look up Mike Sikowitz, who is the creator of um, Welcome to the Family. He's been a producer on Rules of Engagement, The Class, Grounded for Life. Um, and he was a writer on Rules of Engagement, The Class, Grounded for Life, obviously. But he also was a writer or developer on The Wild Thornberries. And he was a writer on Friends for a few years. So sounds like he's got he's got a padded resume. Sounds like Jeannie actually married him at some point. Thank you. Thank you. It was the reason the show was canceled. The sexual tension was dissolved when they were married. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know what? But but what about like um, Bewitched? And they were always a couple. Yeah. And it worked. Bewitched worked. Well, Bewitched wasn't there was no sexual tension. They were just together. Oh, I think there was Um, sexual tension. And Darren was always like, but don't use magic. And then she did because wacky. And and that mother-in-law. She was the best. Yeah, she was awesome. Let's just. What if this show just became us talking about uh, TV shows from the '60s, thanks to NBC? Well, you know, you know, they tried bringing back the Munsters, which you know. I would have watched. I didn't watch Mockingbird Lane because I figured it would just make me sad. But if they brought back the Munsters, we probably wouldn't have Hannibal right now. So there you go. I'm happy. But maybe they'll bring back Bewitched or I Dream of Genie in some horrible way. Bewitched which was is not... that 2006 movie with Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell that right. we've already brought well, it back. Well. I mean, I mean, bring it back as a television show. I know they may be wildly unsuccessful. That movie. had an interesting premise uh, and did like almost nothing with it. You but, saw the movie? Oh, of course I saw the movie. <laughs> um, oh, it was directed and written by Nora Ephron. Yeah, I'm a I'm an Ephron fan. Like the premise of the movie was interesting. Nicole Kidman was actually a witch who was cast to play, uh, what's her name? Um. Samantha in in a bewitched movie. Oh, okay. You so know like, what? That's like oh, that's overthinking it. It though. was it was too high concept, but it could I think it could have been interesting, and instead it was just kind of meh. Like it didn't do anything with that, and Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell kind of fell in love, and it was just not very good. Uh, we've gotten way off the beaten path on this, though. Yeah, but so uh, Jonathan Banks is going to be on Community. Yay! Yeah. Uh, we're excited about that. I think. Um, we will definitely be talking about, I'll be writing about the season now. I know I promised to never cover Community again, but I'm breaking that promise because Dan Harmon's back. So we will have a lot to say, I'm sure, when the show comes back in question mark. When Welcome to the Family fails in two or three episodes, maybe the show comes back this fall. Um, I mean, they got a lot of things on Thursday night that could just tank right now. I assume Sean Saves the World and Michael J. Fox will get at least a season because they've got high-profile people running them, or I mean on them. But Welcome to the Family sounds like something that shouldn't even be on television. So maybe we'll get community earlier than we think. Whenever it comes back, I'll be on it. We'll talk about Jonathan Banks. We'll talk about the show in general. For now, I want to move on and talk about uh, a new story that I, I feel like probably hasn't been getting a lot of attention out of me following it because I find this fascinating. Uh, the film Escape from Tomorrow, which was shot without permission and secretly within Disneyland and Disney World. Um, premiered at Sundance, is supposedly, I don't know, I hear variable things about its quality, but it's supposed to be really interesting just for the fact that it was completely illegally shot. And it was one of those movies that I assumed, and that a lot of people assumed at the time, Disney would sue to keep it from ever being released. They have not sued yet, and it now has a release date this fall. So there's at least a pretty good chance that people like me who care about this, and any of you who find the idea of a movie shot within Disneyland interesting, uh, will get to see it. So I'm excited about the prospect of actually seeing Escape from Tomorrow, a movie that I thought sounded awesome and figured I would never get to see. Um, Sam, have you been following this at all? Are you interested at all? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of interested. I'm more interested in, like, how good of a movie it is. I feel like uh, just the idea that it was, like, secretly shot in Disney World and Disneyland on its own is not, like, super duper. You you sneak cameras in and you, like, you filmed your movie there. I think that's kind of interesting, but... As far like I need I need the movie to be interesting on its own merits for me to really be uh, interested in seeing it. And from what I understand that they've they've actually cut about 15 minutes of the movie um, to try to 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 try to like circumvent any way that Disney can sue them. I'm still not sure about what did they cut out? I have no idea. I'm curious what they would cut out, because if it was all shot within Disneyland and Disney World, are they just cutting out the most iconic Disneyland and Disney World things? Because if so, that that erases much of what I would find interesting about the movie. Well, if I had to guess what they cut out, they probably cut out images that are that Disney would claim copyright. Um, 
infringement. Yeah. I, I have to assume. I don't know for sure what they cut out, but I do know that it's they've cut about 15 minutes from the movie. Um, and my only assumption is many of those cuts have to do with the fact that they'll that they were probably going to be sued. Um, but yeah, just like it's like interesting that they shot this movie in there like without permission, but on its own, that that like that's not enough for me. If it, it, it's supposedly a good movie, and if it's a good movie, I'll be interested to see it. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a gimmick, but I feel like it's a gimmick that, as a lifelong Disney fan and you know pass holder, pretty much my entire life at Disneyland, um, I I feel like there's enough there that if it's not an interesting, if it's not a good movie, I'd at least be interested to see, you know, locations where I've spent hundreds of hours of my life uh, depicting. You know, I feel like if they shoot a movie in a place that I'm very familiar with, I'm always like, oh yeah, I'll I'll check it out and see like how they've interpreted it, what locations I find familiar. I feel like that's not enough to make a good movie. Um, it's often not enough to make even an interesting movie, but it's probably enough to get me to see a movie. Um, I hope the movie's good, obviously. I'll be more excited if it's good than that it has things that look familiar to me. But I feel like that they managed to... Like, this is the sort of gimmick that's hard to pull off, and it's something that's close to my heart. So for that alone, I will definitely be giving Escape from Tomorrow a chance Uh should it actually get released, which I think chances are good now since there's a release date, but also there's a chance Disney will last minute decide to sue and the release date will get pushed and who knows. Yeah, I don't know. I'm interested to see how the movie will be. Um, yeah, beyond, I want to see if, if there's anything there beyond the gimmick. Yeah, I mean, it's a good gimmick, which, cool, but ultimately I feel like very rare is the gimmick that's good enough to make the movie itself. Right. Um, but yes, I will be checking this out. Um, I assume you'll probably check it out if it sounds like it's good. Uh, I don't know. We probably won't ever talk about this in the podcast again, but there's a chance something about it will pop <laughs> we'll up probably, on the website. We'll probably never, ever talk about it again. I mean, I feel like if Disney, if Disney like shuts it down, we might mention it. Yeah. But again, like, would it be that surprising? Like yeah. if they shot the movie illegally without permission, it's... What's surprising, the reason I wanted to bring it up today is, A, because I th- I'm excited to see what this movie actually looks like, but I think it's interesting Disney hasn't sued, because, I mean, Disney's not known for not being litigious, you know, they're they're <laughs> quick to shut down anything that anything like this, really, so it's shocking to me they haven't sued yet, and I wonder, I, I wonder what the reasoning is for Disney, I don't know if it's like, it's a good movie and it's good publicity, um, I doubt. Well, it's definitely not, it's not going to be good publicity, because I think the, the story of the movie is like, the father, it's a father and daughter in Disneyland or Disney World, and, like, he's going, like, insane. Yeah, but I feel like it's good publicity in terms of, for people like us, Disney not shutting it down makes them look better than it would for them to shut it down. And I imagine, it's an indie movie, it's probably not going to play anywhere, maybe they're just figuring, why squelch it, no one's going to see it anyway, and the people that do will think better of us for it. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know, that'll yeah, be interesting to see in the life. coming months. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see... Like I said, I'm not going to make promises like I do about Jonathan Banks that this will ever come up again, but you guys should follow the story on your own time. We can't do everything for you, okay? Sometimes you got to follow stories yourself. Um, and if anything amazing happens, we will probably talk about it again. Otherwise, hopefully we'll all get a chance to see this movie. Um, with that, why don't we close down our, our news segment of the show and move into uh, a discussion of 2013 summer movies at the box office. Let's talk about what we saw this summer, what we liked, what we didn't like, uh, our thoughts on the summer as a whole. I just, I kind of want to have just a loose conversation about your summer at the movies, Sam. So why don't we start with um, your favorite and the least favorite movie you saw this summer? Let's start there. Oh, geez. I haven't really thought about this yet. Um, well, I won't hold. Let's see. On spot. Oh, um, okay. Okay. Let's, let's divide it like this. I'm going to try to divide it like this because I feel like it's tough to talk like, because this summer, in terms of blockbusters, I feel like has been like really disappointing for me. Sure. Um, but I did like, I did like. I think my favorite blockbuster of the movie of the season is um, Pacific Rim, which I really enjoyed um, from Guillermo del Toro. Um, it kind of delivered. It really delivered what it was promising, and I feel like this this summer was like a, a lot about promising and not delivering. Um, so I was really pleased with robots versus monsters and it, it really, it was just like, you knew what you're going to get and it really delivered and it had a great gravitas performance from Idris Elba, even if all the other human, <laughs> the other, other human characters weren't really up to snuff. 
especially the lead, who I, I think I've talked about this. With yeah, you, Jordan. We, we did. We did Maybe a segment on, on Sipgram earlier. We talked about that a little bit. Um, I, I think you're not giving enough yeah, credit thought, to Ron Perlman. Charlie Hunman, is that his name? Yeah, well, Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, uh, Ron, Ron I feel like he was basically not thought, there. I thought, the, I thought the periphery, like the peripheral characters were pretty good. I thought Charlie Day and I forget the actor who plays the sidekick from Deadwood, uh, from uh, Torchwood. Um, they were good, and Ron Perlman was really great, but he, his role was like so small. Yeah. Um, I wanted more. Yeah, I, um, I feel like everything around Charlie Hunnam in the movie was actually pretty fantastic. Um, and I also think Pacific Rim was like, it was a good old-fashioned blockbuster in a way that I think movies have been moving away from for a while now. I mean, we've we talked a lot about this during the Pacific Rim, but I think we can do a couple minutes now just to say, like, Pacific Rim is... is I think the first movie I've seen in a couple years that really felt like a blockbuster just for the sake of being a blockbuster in a good way. I don't know if that if that makes any sense, but that's kind of my takeaway was like it felt like the old like Roland Emmerich before Roland Emmerich became uh, just blowing up the White House again and again. You know, it felt sort of like an Independence Day style, like just a really good, fun time at the movies for the summer. Yeah, um, but I think my favorite movie of the summer just overall done summer movie in quotation marks movie, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, had to be the act of killing, which is about as not like a summer movie as you're going to get. I feel like this has been like the sullen summer for me. I've seen a lot of depressing movies, you know, Fruitvale Station and The Hunt, just like movies about just like the saddest shit and like <laughs> just people's lives falling to ruin. Um, Last night I saw uh, The Spectacular Now, which I really enjoyed. I know you enjoyed it, too. Oh, yeah, I loved that movie. Um, so, yeah, I, I was pleased with that. I think I was pleased with kind of the smaller movies this year. I feel like I, I was really, really disappointed by kind of the bigger summer movies. I just didn't have – there wasn't a lot of – the movies I did see seemed to kind of fall short, and there were a lot of movies that I passed on just because there was just so much negative reaction surrounding it that – I was. I just didn't really have particular interest. Um, yeah, I think. So yeah. I better think, luck next summer. <laughs> I think we'll dig a little bit more into some of the specifics on the blockbusters, but I do want to uh, agree with you at the start of this and say, I actually think like 2013, summer 2013 was a shitty year for blockbusters. I think we can agree, but I think it was actually a pretty great year for counter programming. I feel like there are. I, I've seen maybe five or six movies this summer that I think will be in contention for my year-end list. Um, and none, I mean, none of them were what you'd call summer movies, but I think we've seen a lot of really good counter-programming. We've seen, you know, Mud and Before Midnight were fantastic May movies, both of which are probably at the top of my list for year, for the year so far, if I were to make one right now. Are those, I think. those are May movies? Do May movies count? Yeah. You mean Iron Man 3 was a May, uh, May movie. Um, Star Trek Into Darkness. You had, you like, Blockbuster season starts in May now. That seems early to me. May is spring. Yeah, but it's been, I mean, that's been summer movie season for a long time. May through August is what we look at now. Because, you know, you had Avengers was last May. Um, I think both Star Trek movies came out in May. I think you usually get one big movie, usually a big Marvel movie in May, and occasionally a couple other ones. But I would definitely call May part of the summer. Uh, at least the summer movie season. Not calendar-wise, May is spring. Um, but summer movie-wise, you start to see them roll out in May. Usually, I think you've got the two halves of the summer. You've got May and June. Uh, where you've usually got the bigger tentpole movies and you've sort of got July cleaning up with, you know, uh, you got all the Batman movies I think were released in July, or at least the last two were. Um, And then August is sort of like the smaller, more tentative stabs at Blockbuster. Like this year we got uh, R.I.P.T. Did you see The Butler yet? I did see The Butler, yes. Is it any good? Yeah, it's actually, it's a lot better than I expected it to be. Um, It's... It's not Forrest Gump, which a lot of people are throwing the, the criticism at it, and I feel like it's a like that doesn't make any sense because the story of this movie is basically about how this guy was there for a lot of historical events, where Forrest Gump is like he trips over a ladder and falls into you know whatever. Um, well, I think they're saying that he's like kind of just like a fly on the wall for these type of events. Like he's not he's not necessarily like affecting the events, but he's kind of the gateway into these like big historical events, which I think is where the that he that he is a fly on the wall is definitely true, but I think the movie is more about why he had to be a fly on the wall. I, this is um, in a year we saw like 42 earlier this year. Uh, I feel like was sort of ham-handed uh, dealing with similar issues. I think the Butler does a, a really good job of mixing like the sort of 
the Hollywood, you have to talk about this sort of thing when you do a movie about the civil rights era and moments of actual visceral realism that I liked. I feel like it did a really good job enough of the time of being like, this is what it was actually like to be a black person trying to make your way in the civil rights era. Um, and sometimes it gets it wrong. You know, I think the relationship was, between... Oh, go ahead. Was the visceral re- realism broken up at all by John Cusack as Richard Nixon? Um, yes and no. I think the president's the president's actually I, I think Lee Daniels is doing something interesting there and sort of making them caricatures. Uh, and I think most of the performances work for what they are. Uh, none of them is is a great performance of of the president, I don't think. Al, Alan Rickman comes closest as Ronald Reagan, but he's not in the movie that much. Um, they're all interesting. But I feel like the presidents, for the most part, are there to, like, you see them talk about, like, this is what's going on with race relations, and this is what I did as president for race relations. And then each of them gets a moment where they talk with Forrest Whitaker and are like, I don't hate black people, or, like, you've changed my mind on black people. And it's <laughs> like, basically, each president gets a moment to be like, I'm not a terrible person, even though some of the presidents are kind of terrible people uh, that the movie covers. <laughs> Richard Nixon's like, I don't hate black people. Just kidding. You know I totally do. Later. Yeah, pretty much pretty much every president gets a moment where they're like, I wasn't really a racist, even if they were a racist. Um, And I didn't love that. But I I think the presidents, the role the presidents played were interesting. Um, I think a lot of the relationship between Forrest Whitaker and his son, played by David Oyelowo, um, is is sort of the standard Hollywood like a strange father and son stuff. But some Mm -hmm. of it's done very well. And I think uh, I, I feel like. The movie's always going to take flack for the fact that the son becomes a Black Panther and is very, like, very into all the civil rights stuff. But I actually think it was, like, it's part of the point of the movie that you want to see that side of the story and you couldn't see it through Forrest Whitaker. So I understand why it's there. And I think it was more effective than I think a lot of people are saying. Um, I I don't think the butler was great, but I think it was actually very good. And it was it was probably about two times as good a movie as I expected it to be. Um, so I'll say that. But so. Is okay. Danny Strong going to continue his march toward an EGOT, Jordan? I, I, Danny Strong may continue his march toward an EGOT. I don't know if I don't know if this is the movie, but this is definitely uh, burgeoning his cred and his, his chances of getting the EGOT. Um, which well, is, to continue my uh, Crazy Sam theories, go ahead. I talked to Ashley a lot about this, but the spell that Danny Strong casts in Buffy yep. for that terrible episode, oh, I think I it's real. Episode. I think Danny Strong has. What? I love that episode, but go ahead and Oh, I really hate that episode. <laughs> we could talk about this. We, we could talk about this on another Buffy podcast. Yeah, we'll do a Buffy podcast someday and we can fight about Superstar because um, I think it's great. Yeah, the Superstar, that's it. Um, but it's real. Danny Strong has Jonathan Jonathan's like superpowers and he's got kind of gotten in touch with somebody and now he's like this he's a super hot commodity. It's really funny because I will never not think of him as Jonathan from Buffy, even though he's like He's written some really great things, uh, and he's, you know, he appeared in Mad Men. He's done, you know, he's done a lot of things, but he will always be Jonathan to me. And he's he's got a bit part in the movie. He's in it for maybe 30 seconds, uh, but he's in The Butler briefly. And Who does he play? He plays Guy on the bus uh, with the Freedom Riders for like 30 seconds. Uh. He's like, he's hitting on one of the black girls, and he's like, I'm cool and progressive. Um, and I was like, hey, mom, that's the screenwriter. Uh, I saw it with my parents. Right. As you might have gotten from that anecdote. But yeah, he's in it for a bit. And I'm just like, Jonathan, you're there. Yeah. So the butler's good. Uh, I don't know. I would say chances are low that that will make my top 10 list for the year. It's possible. It's good. Um, But yeah, you've got stuff like that. You've got uh, Before Midnight Mud, uh, The Spectacular Now. Um, so I think, I think we've had some, uh, some really good counter programming. I haven't seen The Conjuring, but from what I'm told, it's a pretty solid horror movie. Uh, which is something that's started to creep into the summer a little bit more in terms of counter-programming um, and is supposedly doing pretty well. But why don't we... We'll, we'll bounce back and forth on the on the big tentpole versus the, uh, the small counter-programming movies. Um, what are some of the things that you think the, the summer really failed on? Like, what, what, why do you think this summer will go down, as it already sort of has, I think, in the, in the critical and cultural mindset as such a terrible summer for movies? Well, I think, I mean, I think we've talked about this earlier. It's that it hasn't delivered with the, quote, summer blockbuster the way we kind of expect it to. And they've actually been, and it's not just, I don't think it's just like um, a commercial lapse. I think it's also like a critical lapse, too. 
that there's they're not they're not they just haven't been very good movies. And when we look to movies like um, say uh, Man of Steel, they just like it's the recipe's there. It's just like it's not tasting right. And I think I think this this summer has kind of been making people very wary of where we are in terms of summer blockbusters. And I think this has like come up in like I feel like a bunch of think pieces about this summer is that you know is the is the modern blockbuster kind of dead? Do we need to re rejigger it and figure out what to do with it? I think it might it might just be a case of the movies just being bad um, because there are always going to be bad movies that come out in the summer, and we just haven't had. A, we just haven't had many good ones. I don't. I think. I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Um, I do think people might be kind of burned out on kind of the the Emmerich type, like everything explodes. Like I think we had two movies come out this summer about like the White House being hijacked or something. Um, the the superhero movies haven't lived up to par. Um, I think people were kind of disappointed by Batman last year, and I think this year. People were also disappointed by Superman and Iron Man was kind of like better, but not great. Um, and there was the Wolverine, which I don't think made a ton of waves. And then there was, there was a general critical consensus with a few outliers about the Lone Ranger being kind of bad. Um, uh, I, I'm one of those I know, outliers I, and I think we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, yeah. I mean, I know you and Matt Zoller sites are the people who like are the defenders of the Lone Ranger. Yeah. Slightly, um, slightly different levels of prominence between myself and Matt Zoller sites. Uh, barely. We agree on that and After Earth, uh, which is why he's he's become one of my uh, one of my critical mainstays this summer because I feel like he's the only one out there who's sort of seen these movies the same way and approached summer of 2013 the way I have. But we'll get to those two in a minute. Keep going. Um, yeah, that's all I got basically. They just haven't been very good movies, I and think... I think people are kind of wary of where we're at right now. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if that's because there really is a problem with the amount of you know, superhero slash Emmerich blow em up type movies, or if it's just a matter of the movies have been bad this year. So people think there's an overarching problem with the state of blockbusters. It's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think actually there are, there are points on both sides that I, I, I agree with. Um, the thing that I kept coming back to this summer, and I really, I think man of steel and star Trek into darkness are the only two that fully live up to this, but when I think about the summer as a whole, I think what I'll remember is they just weren't any fun. Like, a lot of these blockbuster movies just were so dour and serious. And what I loved about the first Star Trek was that it was, like, a fun, funny, good time at the movies. Um, Star Trek Into Darkness is not that. It's just, it's dour and it's serious. And I don't think as thematically resonant as J.J. Abrams seemed to think it was. Uh, it just felt like it was being dark for darkness sake. And the same is true of Man of Steel. Mm -hmm. I've never thought of well, Jordan. It wasn't called Star Trek into lightness. It was not. If if it had been called Star Trek into uh, yeah, lightness, Star Trek into uh, brevity, <laughs> Star Trek into wits, I would have enjoyed any of that. Like what I liked about the first movie was that it was funny and fun. Um, I liked the chemistry between the characters. I don't even feel like I feel like they weren't even in the same movie this time around. Like there was so little character interactions in Star Trek into darkness. It was just like everyone was there glowering. Um, Zoe Saldana was in the movie, but she might as well not have been. Um, and it was, that really disappointed me. Man of Steel, Superman's not really a dark character. I think, I think you can do darkness with Superman, but I don't think that the Nolan format is really the way they should have gone with that. And I think it, that among a lot of other things tanked that movie for me. Um, well, we're going to get, we're going to get a lot more of that Superman apparently. And then we're going to smush them together with Batman and it's going to be Zack Snyder's Batman. I was going to say, the last thing really... I really need is Zack Snyder doing Batman and Superman at the same time. Um, who it knows? seems like a disaster looking at it, honestly. I feel like I, I hate Zack Snyder less than you do, which is not to say that I like Zack Snyder. <laughs> um, just just that I think, like, I thought 300 was fine for what it was. Uh, and a little interesting because we hadn't been killed by Zack Snyder's style at the time. But I thought, like, that was a fine movie. I thought Watchmen desecrated a, a comic that I love <laughs> and yet was probably, like the best we could have hoped for in terms of Zack Snyder directing Watchmen. I think it was a much better movie than I'd worried it would be. Well, it was the best we could, could have hoped for. Let's talk about Zack Snyder now. I always love it. Um, it was the best we could have hoped for um, from Zack Snyder. Right, yeah. But I feel like that just means it's going to be bad. Like, it's, if, you know... I mean, I'll grant you, Zack Snyder has never made a movie that I've liked out and out. Like, he's, he's made movies that I found were interesting, um, which is 
that's something we're going to get back to in a minute, because I think the thing that I like most about After Earth and The Lone Ranger, as opposed to the rest of this blockbuster summer, is that they're interesting movies. Um, and I think Zack Snyder has occasionally made movies that I would classify as interesting, or interesting enough. Um, not Man of Steel. I think Man of Steel, the one thing, and I, we talked about this on the podcast earlier, I think. Man of Steel, the one thing I would say for it is... The action felt like Superman action in a way that I don't think I've ever seen in the big screen before. The big fights felt like the sort of fights Superman would be in. But that's not enough for me. Like, the story around it was a shambles to my mind, and I think it squandered a lot of great potential Superman things. Um, so, like... Oh, well, actually, while we're on that, that brings up kind of a point I think that's been brought up a lot this summer. Go ahead. Um, I think there's kind of this idea that there's, like, a certain amount of uh, total annihilation... Um, fatigue in audiences. Um, and I think it also goes with Star Trek Into Darkness where there are movies again where it's just like everything gets blown up real good and in a way where it's like we're uncomfortable with that or it's like too much or it's just been so much and so often that it's just kind of become it's be, kind of become boring and pedestrian. You know? And I don't think oh, it wasn't there in Pacific Rim because I feel like Pacific Rim, it was more about, like, the fight between the two parties yeah. rather than, like, the destruction of... Because a lot of it, a lot of Pacific Rim fighting took place in the ocean. Right. Where it was... Which I thought was kind of smart because it was... It really focused on the battle between the robots and the monsters. Yeah. And I think people were talking about, like, you know... I think there's, like, 25 minutes of Star Trek Into Darkness is seeing things, like, crash into cities and, like, just people running around screaming. And, you know, there's there are things to be said about, like, what that means in a post 9-11 world or whatever. But I think ultimately it's like I think people are just kind of tired of that or at least growing tired of that because we've kind of had that since, you know, the mid 90s with uh, Emmerich's, you know, blow everything up movies and Michael Bay. You know, I, and I think okay. I think one of the arguments about like the. Um, uh, like with the death knell of the summer blockbuster, as we know it. Um, I don't know if it, it means like it's over for that type of movie, but I also wouldn't, I wouldn't be upset to see like summer blockbusters go in a different direction because it just seems like it's always that. And it is kind of tiring. I, I, I'll agree that I wouldn't be upset to see summer blockbusters go in another direction because I feel like there are a lot of different ways to make a fun summer blockbuster and you don't have to destroy a city to get it done. You know, we used to see, you know, sort of buddy cop action movies. Like we got a little bit of that in the heat, which was not, not great. Um, but we used to see those type of movies. We used to see we used to see a lot of different types of blockbusters, and we have seen a lot of this destruction porn. Um, I don't think the problem is that too many cities are being destroyed. I think the problem is too many cities are being destroyed thoughtlessly and without any weight. I, I feel like, and that's why I think Pacific Rim actually, it didn't bother me at all, where in Man of Steel, it, it just got enervating after a while, is... I felt like Pacific Rim understood the stakes and spent a lot of its runtime saying, like, the world has been changed and completely reshaped by the level of destruction that it's seen. Whereas in Man of Steel, you saw Superman literally destroy a city, and no one seemed to care about the death toll at all. And in fact, the message that we were to take away was that we were crawling out of the rubble saying he saved us when thousands would be dead. But I think that's par for the course for these types of summer blockbusters. I mean, when you look at a movie like um, Armageddon, you know, there isn't, there aren't like many consequences to the type of destruction in those movies. And that's just kind of how it's been for 15, you know, about 15 years now. And I feel like, I think it's kind of tiring. I think when like every summer you get these type of movies and then, you know, the entire movie is spent destroying various cities on earth, be it 2012 or the day after tomorrow. And it kind of just ends with people like, you know, they solve the problem at the end and they're just like, well, and now we rebuild. And like, there's, there, there aren't any really like problems with this type of destructions. I think when you I, I agree with you that, you know, people just like, the problem is that there's, there are these destructions of cities and movies without any thought or without any consequences to it. I agree with that. But I also think the problem with that is that's just how it is in every single blockbuster. Um, of these types that, that we've been getting for the last few summers. And I think that gets tiring after a while or boring or repetitive. Yeah. I, I think the ultimate problem is the sameness that we see in a lot of these movies. It's that dour tone that I love Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, but unfortunately their legacy seems to be that everything needs to be dark and gritty and humorless. Um, and I think that's fine for a Batman movie and that's fine for some movies. But when you see a lot of movies that are dark, gritty, realistic, dour, um, 
you know, contemplations of destruction uh, that don't really contemplate destruction but seem to think they are by blowing a lot up. I think the problem with Star Trek Into Darkness and Man of Steel is ultimately they're kind of the same movie, and it's not a very good one. Um, and I'd at least, if movies are going to be bad, I'd at least like them to be different types of bad. Um, right. And that's, I think that's the biggest problem I've had with those two movies this summer. Uh, and that's why I found myself sort of championing After Earth and The Lone Ranger. And again, championing, you know, I think I gave After Earth a B- minus when I reviewed it, and I think I gave The Lone Ranger a B. I'm not saying these are like great, great movies. But they were both movies that tried something new and did something different and failed in different and more interesting ways. You know, neither of them is this completely. I mean, After Earth is actually kind of humorless, but it's humorless in a different way and it's dour in a different way. And its failings were actually when it was not those things, which is interesting. Um, After Earth was like half of a great movie and half of a shitty M. Night Shyamalan movie. Uh but I actually think the great movie might have outweighed the shittiness for me a lot of the time. And isn't summer movies about outweighing the shittiness? I mean, this summer it was. Like, in another summer, After Earth, I think The Lone Ranger would actually be a pretty decent movie in any summer. And I I really I don't understand the, the critical drumming it's getting because I think, I, I think it's not as good as Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, which you haven't seen, right? We've talked about this before. I've seen the second part of the Yeah, Caribbean. the first one is the only one you need to see, and you haven't seen that one. You should go see that. It's not as good a movie as that, which is, I think, a great summer movie. Um, but it's, I think Gore Verbinski makes blockbusters that are so much more inventive and have such a different spirit to them and soul than a lot of the movies we're seeing right now. I mean, The Lone Ranger tries to be about 30 different things, and that means it fails at being all of them. But, like, <laughs> you get to watch it be a revisionist Western and, like, a big overblown blockbuster movie and sort of a subversive take on the Lone Ranger mythos and on like anti, uh, you know, red face and, and uh, Indian stereotypes. And it's also like a saloon movie. And, you know, there's a great train robbery sequence and it's like, it's 50 different things. And it's not, you know, what's interesting is it's not innervating in the way that the 30 minutes of Superman fighting Zod is in Man of Steel. It's propulsive. It's, it's fun to watch it jump and try to switch tones every 30 seconds and try to try to be a bunch of different things at the same time. And when it works, it's like it's a fun, funny, interesting movie to watch. And sometimes it doesn't work. But I, you know, you know me, I, I'm a huge fan of failures of ambition. If, if you're going to like Cloud Atlas last year, which I don't I don't think you saw, but I did. Oh, you did. What did you think mm-hmm. of that? Uh, I, I kind of liked it. I thought it was kind of interesting. The thing that was like made Cloud Atlas kind of easier to deal with its failures is because of the way it was structured and that there were so many different stories of something that really worked. You know, you had, you were only with it for like 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. And then you kind of went to some other world, which is, which kind of made it refreshing when things didn't really work. Cause the whole thing certainly didn't work. Um, I would, I would classify but I think parts work. as the same type of movie in terms of a really interesting, ultimately a failure. Like it's like, this is not, this is not a, a successful movie, but the way that it fails is the sort of way that I'd like more movies to fail. You know, it's, it's a failure of ambition. It is trying a lot of things. And while Cloud Atlas actually jumps from story to story when something's not working fa- fairly well, I think the Lone Ranger sort of jumps from tone to tone so quickly that when it, when you're like, well, this tone does not work for me at all. It's like, don't worry, next scene's gonna be something totally different. Um, and I've I've really sort of come around on Gore Verbinski, and I'm gonna have to go back and see some of his movies that I haven't seen, just just in how much I liked the Lone Ranger and thinking back on the things I liked and the things I didn't like about the Pirates movies. I feel like he's been making blockbusters for about a decade now, and even though a lot of people are calling the Lone Ranger the same, like basically a, a warmed over Pirates of the Caribbean, I don't think it is. I think he makes movies that have their own voice uh, in a way that a lot of blockbusters don't. And what I liked about the Lone Ranger is that it did. It had, like I said, maybe about 15 different of its own voices, but it didn't feel like anything else I've seen in the movies this year. And that that was something that I liked. And that's ultimately, I think, what I would take away from the the big summer movies that I liked at the uh, at the movies this summer. That was a terrible sentence, but you know what I mean. I think the big the big movies I've liked were the ones that tried something new because the ones I didn't I didn't like because of their like just overwhelming sameness. So I don't, I don't know how strong a recommendation it is for me to say like The Lone Ranger does a lot of things that you haven't seen before and fails a lot of the time, but I really think more people should see this movie and I think in 5 or 10 years it will have a better critical reputation than it has right now because it's it's interesting, and I already barely remember Star Trek Into Darkness and Man of Steel. You know, those are movies that will completely disappear from my memory. 
I'll remember the Lone Ranger. And when it comes on, you know, if it's on TV and I channel surf by it, I'll probably watch it again in a few years. And I feel like people are going to be discovering this movie for a while. Uh, we should probably wrap this up because we do want to do another segment. Do you have any big last thoughts on 2013 Summer at the Movies? Nope. All right. Well, Sam and Jordan saying, wasn't a very good year for movies. There were some interesting things out there. Um, better luck next year, Hollywood. For now, why don't we move into, uh, there's been this sort of, I don't even know if I really want to call it a debate, maybe a, a light batting back and forth on TV criticism over the last few days on the internet with the Wall Street Journal published this article sort of talking about recap culture and how it's it's killing a lot of critics and how <clears throat> the medium is not going to last and it's going to burn out. Uh, Matt Zoller-Seitz, who we've talked about earlier as one of my uh, critical counterparts in terms of we've agreed on a lot of things, even though the man is a titan, he now runs RogerEbert.com. Uh, so not, not conflating myself with him, but we have agreed on a few things over the course of the summer. He sort of batted back against the Wall Street Journal and talked about how TV criticism as a medium is very young. There's a lot of experimenting going on out there, and there's a lot of great writing going on out there. Um, I thought, as as uh, Sam and I have been doing the the TV criticism thing ourselves for what four years now, um, we've read a lot of TV criticism from before that um, and read a lot of it now. I felt like now is a good time to weigh in on sort of the state of TV criticism, where you feel like your loyalties lie, what you think the merits and uh, the detriments, you know, the the bad things about each argument are. Uh, so I just wanted to dig into sort of a, a state of TV criticism for a couple minutes with you, Sam. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I feel like we should probably pick a specific place to start here. Um, I think what the, what the kind of the, the article, what Matt, uh, Matt cites his article and kind of the articles he's responding to, talking about recap culture, I do think that recaps are a part of film, uh, sorry, television criticism. Um, and I think they're a valid part of it. But the thing that I think is important is that it's a part of it. And it's not the whole thing. Um, I'm not sure if the article that he references in the Wall Street Journal that is mainly focused on uh, recaps. I'm not sure if that article is saying that, like, this is this is all there is. I think he said I think the article is really about how it is such a driving force now. Um, it talks a lot about how uh, recaps of episodes of television shows like Breaking Bad um, sometimes are the highest, they get the highest hits on their respective websites. And some websites have kind of completely been, uh, kind of completely been built on the shoulders of uh, epi like episode by episode recaps. And I think, I think what uh, Sites is saying is that while this is like a part of it and a legitimate part of it, there is a lot more to television criticism. But I think what was most interesting about what he wrote is that, you know, if we're looking at television as kind of like an adolescent, uh, you know, a medium in its adolescence and that like TV has been like on like, un it made like a huge leap in quality only, you know, 15 years only ago, 15 years ago, if we're using, let's use the general Sopranos era as kind of a benchmark. It's only been around, it's only been doing this great TV for 15 years. And if you look at, if you compare it to the first 15 years of film, you know that the story wasn't, the story wasn't closed on film or film criticism, you know, by 1915 or, or slightly earlier than that. And I think his argument is sound is that, you know, there is a lot of great work out there that's not just television recaps, um, but it's also, you know, this is what where we're at now is not the end of television criticism. This not this is not what television criticism is going to look like for the next 50 years. Um, and I think that's why it's not going to die or peter out. I think it's going to just keep changing, especially as we see television changing now. I um, I have two things that I think uh, I want to throw in now. The first, sure. the Wall Street Journal article says something about the effect of like we haven't had uh, a Pauline Kale or an Andrew Saris of TV criticism yet, and I think that's arguably true I, I i feel like there are major voices in tv criticism that i think have done some huge things you know you've got uh, alan seppenwall i think todd vanderwerf um maureen ryan i think there are a lot of really great tv critics out there but even if you accept the premise of that andrew saris and pauline kale were film critics in you know the 60s is when they were really ascendant Cahiers du cinema you know when you had the the big french guys uh who i think really reinvented the critical wheel and sort of saris kind of piggybacked on the auteur theory and jumped on that that was in the 50s. You know, this is 
half really half a century after movies got started and, and at least 30 years after they uh, started to become great. So I feel like it's too early to be decrying the fact that we haven't had a, a Pauline Kaler and Andrew Saris. Um, the other thing I want to say is I hate I hate the way that the Wall Street Journal article bandies about the word recap because I feel like I feel like most of what it's talking about are not recaps, they are reviews. Um I think TV recaps exist out there where it's basically like this is what happened in the episode. I think a lot of people write those for say like Real Housewives of Orange County or you know the Real Housewives shows. I think I think there are websites that do mostly exclusively recaps, but a lot of the websites that the Wall Street Journal is talking about, you know, talk about Donna Bowman over at the AV Club writing about Breaking Bad. I've never once thought of what she does as recapping. It's a review. Um, and like any film review, it includes some plot summary, as is needed to discuss what happened in the episode. But it's mostly a, a much more in-depth uh, critical analysis of what's happened. And I think calling it a recap undercuts a lot of what it's trying to do. Um, and I think that's true of most uh, TV criticism. What I wanted to kick to you, because you, I know you and I have had discussions before when you've been writing uh, about TV shows for Review to Be Named, about how much you hate doing the plot summary and what you what you think about that. So I wanted to kick over to you and say, when you're writing a TV review um, and when you're reading TV reviews, how much are you looking for the recap part of it and how much are you looking for something else? And why, how do you think that balance should be struck? Um, well, I think there's definitely value in, like, the television recap, especially with shows. Um, I think a show that kept getting brought up in the Wall Street Journal article is a show like Lost, where Lost has just, like, a ton going on and also has a ton, you know, you have to look back on. And I think there's definitely value in that. Um, but but when I'm, like, writing stuff for the site, I'm not, I'm not, my interest is not in recapping the episode for people because it it seems like a very it's just kind of like a rote task. It's just like, you've watched the episode. I've watched the episode. I'm going to just say exactly what happened in the episode. It seems to be kind of a pointless exercise when I'm, I'm me personally, I'm more concerned about like what I just thought what happened in the, like my, I want to give a review of the episode. I don't want to write a full synopsis of what happened. Um, and when I'm, when I'm reading criticism, I'm more interested in analysis, interpretation, that sort of thing than, Let's talk about exactly what happened this week and just kind of run it down point by point. Um, but there's definitely value in doing like a straight recap um, for certain shows that are just kind of you know super plot heavy or have like a lot of things going at once, which a lot of television does now these days. Um, but yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but when I'm writing it, I'm, I'm more interested in kind of getting to the meat of, you know, what made an episode work, what made an episode not work, what was really interesting about the episode, whether it was the performances or the story or the structure, those sorts of things I have more interest in, in writing about. Um, cause I just kind of, I, I personally feel like I'm wasting, I'm wasting space and time writing about like, and then so-and-so did this and went to the store and then they did this and then they did this and then the episode ends. Okay. Now let's talk about what we're all here to read. Um, I mean, I understand that there has, there has to be like some element of that just to give everything, um, context about right. what you're talking about. But I also feel like um, kind of the the landscape of television reviews, there is, I think, always an assumption that the person reading it will have watched the episode. Otherwise, it'll feel weirdly out of context. Because why watch the show at all if you're going to just read what happened and read the analysis? Yeah, I think I think that's something that's interesting. And I think something that will always set TV criticism apart, at least as long as it's episode by episode, from film criticism is... <clears throat> When I write a TV review, and I think when most TV critics I read write TV reviews, the assumption is you've seen the episode, um, sure. not only so that we don't need to talk about everything that happened in it, but also there will be spoilers. When I write a review, I will spoil what happened in the episode. You know, if it's if I write a review of the pilot of something, I usually try not to because sometimes I'm writing a review of the pilot saying, "Hey, watch this show." Um, so I try to keep pilot pilot reviews or premiere reviews sort of a little bit less spoilery, but. For the most part, if I'm going to write about a TV show, I'm going to say, this is what happened and this is what I thought about it. And I think what I like so much about TV criticism that is not usually the case when I write a film review is you get to go into the nitty gritty. You get to say, like, this plot twist doesn't make sense or doesn't work. Uh, this cliffhanger is good or is not good. Um, and I think you're right. I think what I look for when I'm writing and especially when I'm reading TV criticism is not someone who's going to say this is what happened in the episode, but someone who's going to bring up the plot points that they need to talk about. You know, when I right. when I say 
you know, I don't know, for example, Skylar and Walter fought on this week's Breaking Bad, something like that. I'm saying it only to say, like, this is where their characters are, and this is what I think the show was trying to do with that. Um, I I don't like to, you know, some people I know uh, will write a paragraph at the beginning, like, that's a basic rundown of the episode. I like to bring a plot point up only as I need it for the larger discussion of the show, and I think that's sort of the style that I prefer in criticism. Um, if if something big happens, you know, if there's a big plot twist, I'm probably talking about that up top because that's the thing I'm thinking about the most, and that's the thing that I have the most to say. Uh, but I don't I don't think I don't think of what I've ever done as recapping, and I don't think of the television criticism I read as recapping. Um, is there anyone that you read that you do think is more recapping and you think there's value to it? Uh, any particular uh, writer, or you've mentioned sort of Lost, but any other television shows where you think what you're looking for is mostly a recap? Um, well, I think I think it depends, because if you, if you look at someone like, I think Alan Sepinwall, he is not interested in recapping the episode for the most part. I mean, he... He kind of just brings up things that have happened in the episode that are worth talking about. Um, but I think someone with, I think like um, Todd, uh, Todd Vanderwerf, he he often has like much, much longer pieces um, with episodes. And I think he just, I think he, he's more, he's more interested on hitting on a lot of things. Um, but I also think he's just the type of writer who writes more, which is fine. That's just his style. I think Wall's pieces tend to be much shorter, even, you know, even the, he, he he reviews a lot of shows of varying and reviews them at varying lengths. I think his the longer reviews tend to be for shows like Mad Men or Breaking Bad. But even then, I think they're I like his reviews because they're very to the point. Um, they hit on like the main points that I want to talk about or read about. Um, but yeah, I feel like I feel like the, for the most part, the people I read do like kind of a a blend of the two but leaning more on analysis because analysis and criticism, just because that's who I'm interested in reading. And I don't really read people who just like, you know, write what happened that week because it's not particularly interesting to me. And you know what happened um, that week cause you watched the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's a good point you bring up in that, you know, movie like, uh, like television episode by episode recaps are kind of the equivalent of like the spoiler space that uh, AV Club does, or the the equivalent of spoiler space that <laughs> Dissolve does, but can't call it spoiler space because it's not AV Club. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I do. Um, it's kind of like that. Like a television review is always that version of a review, and I feel like that's kind of an like an interesting take, and I'm kind of glad that that actually is becoming a thing for movie reviews um, because it's more of a a discussion type thing. And I think that's kind of something that's come with the advent of the internet um, I, where you can just have that kind of extra space to do that sort of thing. And I really like that. I, yeah. I think there are two things that, that uh, criticism does. And I think TV criticisms move sort of toward the latter, which I like, which is on the one hand, people read criticism to see, should I watch this? You know, when, when, when some people read movie reviews, it's, am I going to go see the movie? Uh, when people read, I, and that's why I, I try to avoid spoilers in like a pilot review. When people read a pilot review, they're probably thinking, should I watch the TV show? And I think that's that's been the lion's share of criticism and film criticism, especially for a long time, is basically, should I go to the movies? Should I see this movie? Should I watch this TV show even in, in certain instances? And I think we're moving away from that in a way. I think no one reads long form episode by episode reviews to see if they should watch that week's episode. People read exactly. it because they watch the show. Yeah. Um, and I think I, you know, I usually read various movie reviews for movies I see after I see the movie. I don't. Sometimes I'll read, if I'm on the fence, I might read a review before I see it, but I'm usually more interested in what people I like thought after I've seen it and after I have my own thoughts on it. Um, and I think that's true of TV criticism as well. I read a lot of reviews of Breaking Bad. Um, I write my own review of Breaking Bad. I sit down after the episode, sometimes that night, sometimes the next morning, I write a review, and then I go, okay, this is what I thought. Let me go over and check you know, whatever critics I'm reading on it at the time and see what they thought. And sometimes I go, oh, we're on the same page. And sometimes I go, wow, they thought completely different things than I do. But that's... That's how I engage in, in TV criticism. And I feel like that's how a lot of people read it. You know, you watch the episode, you think about it, and then you go read what someone else says about it. Right. Uh, and that's the type of criticism that I've, I have sort of loved. Um, the other thing I want to talk about before we close down this segment is the idea um, you mentioned earlier, and I think the Wall Street Journal article brings up that, that uh, TV criticism, TV recaps, as they call them, these reviews, sometimes they've eaten websites whole, and the Wall Street Journal makes the idea, uh, makes this point that i don't know where it's coming from it's saying like this will collapse like tv criticism is not going to exist in this way for very long um so i kind of wanted to bring up both of those things with you first uh we've seen tv criticism 
either website, I think. I think the AV Club was born as a film website, and you saw most of its film writers leave and go to the Dissolve. And while they didn't say that, it seems to me that what I could take from it was AV Club became a, a TV recap-based website, and they wanted it to go do something else. Um, so I wanted to hear, sort of get what your thoughts are on the idea of TV recaps eating a website, whether you think that's what happened, whether you think that's a thing that will continue to happen, whether it's a good or a bad thing, or, you know, it just is. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, whether you think TV recaps will continue to exist like this, will evolve, or will do some combination of the two. So if you want to get a little bit into those two things. Sure. Um, I mean, I think, I don't, I think that was probably part of the shift at AV Club. I'm not, I'm not sure it was all of it because, you know, AV Club still does film and it still does music um, and news. Um, but I definitely think the television was the most popular part of the website. And I think, I think it's I think it's good that the people who left decided to leave and like really just focus with a website to have a space that's just like just movies. And you know, an AV club still has all their television people pretty much except for the people who left for the film obviously. Um I mean, I feel like with the internet there's like there's space the the only thing is that like there's just so many voices now I can see like things kind of getting cluttered. But I feel ultimately like you're gonna have people you like and people you don't like, and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna seek out the good stuff. And you know, I'm like television like television recaps, like eating website. I'm not particularly concerned about. Um, I, think- I do think I do think I like the idea that re, like television recaps. I think they're gonna they're not going away. And I kind of like the idea. I think they talked about this in the Wall Street Journal article. Was that um, uh, like the AV club, they'll do, they're doing recaps for old shows. And I really like that idea because, you know, for shows like, uh, the Sopranos, which I hadn't seen until this, like earlier this year, you know, watching it through, I was able to read recaps of the Sopranos, which wouldn't have been available unless I, I was, I got old star ledger clippings from Alan Seppenwall. Um, or Todd Vanderwerf's yeah. AV or, Club reviews, which may be my yeah, favorite piece of TV saying. criticism yeah. ever. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like, the like, they didn't like those wouldn't have existed back when the show was on unless you're, of course you're reading the star ledger. Right. Um, but it was, I, I really enjoyed being able to read recaps. Like it was a show that was on now. And I feel like it kind of works as kind of an archive, like a critical archive about like what people thought of the episodes as they aired. Um, and I think it's interesting to look back and like, see, um, just kind of see the critical response to it. I think, I think it'll be more interesting now with now that everybody is like recapping shows that are on the air currently. If we'll look back, you know, people who discover Breaking Bad in 10 years and they read the reviews, which were reviews written by largely people who don't know what's happening the next week. Right. So it's kind of like it's kind of like reliving the viewing experience from years ago. I think it'll be kind of interesting to look back on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of like the idea that there's still going to be episode by episode recaps, even if. You know, I think as, you know, David Simon's talked about, it's like maybe it's not the best way to judge a show episode by episode. Maybe it's like, you know, look at the whole season or just do it differently. Um, I think that was, that's a whole nother argument, I think. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like, yeah, I, I like I like that it's kind of an archive of the viewing experience and of the critical reception episode up episode episode and what people like were thinking about the show. Um, yeah, because I- like. I think there's something interesting, like going back and like that I can go back and read the first recap of the first season or the first episode of Breaking Bad and know like know what it becomes like know what it becomes and but also like seeing even in like the comments section, you see like what people think of the show then. I kinda like having this archive of the moment of you know, where the show is in the critical reception and fandom. I also I agree with David Simon in that like a lot of times TV shows are playing a long game that episode-by-episode episode criticism can't always get a handle on. But that's what I like about episode-by-episode episode criticism. And also, I think what David Simon misses is, like, that's how he has us watching the show, you know? Uh, when, you're, when you're watching The Wire, which was David Simon's big thing, you watch one episode and you wait a week for another episode, and you're thinking about that episode for a week, and you're thinking about the way that it plays into the larger aspect, sure, but you're thinking about it as 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 a unit in and of itself a lot of the time. And I think I like the idea of approaching it from that way. I also think we've seen Netflix has started to change things already. Um, and I've loved the way that AV Club, for example, has covered the Netflix shows and that usually 
two or three days after the show is released, you get a, a full review of the entire thing. Um, and then you get episode by episode reviews, parcels that over several weeks afterwards um, for people who are watching it differently. And I think maybe that will be the future of, of criticism in terms of, I think where you're going to get some people who take the longer view on shows and some people who take the shorter view on shows. And I like the combination of the two. I think both of the both forums have something that's very important. Um, I also think, for the most part, you end up with the full view by the time you finish. You know, when I write a review of finale of the show, and I think when most critics do, you're talking about the season as a whole as well as the episode. Um, sure. And I think when shows end, you find, like Breaking Bad, you've seen dozens, I've seen dozens of think pieces about the whole run of Breaking Bad in these uh, weeks leading up to these final episodes. So I think there's room enough for both, and I think both do exist. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of where I wanted to leave things off, is the idea that, like, I think TV criticism is young. I think it's it's expanding and going places. Uh, I think there's pl plenty of room for all different things. I don't think it's going away. Um, I will say I do think I understand the point about it eating websites because it's just it generates so much, so many more page views, and that's ultimately what the business of running a website is about, right? Um, and you have you know everyone who wants to talk about the show is going to read that review the day it comes out, sure. But you're also going to have people who eventually catch up, and you know. Uh, when I'm catching up on shows, if AV Club or if another critic I read has done write-ups, I'll watch an episode, read the write-up, watch an episode, read the write-up. Um, so you have people who are catching up on shows, reading them years later. Uh, I think I, I see why it it can quote unquote eat a website, but I'm like you said, I'm not really concerned about it either because I think there's a place for it on the internet. The internet's a big place, um, and I think we're gonna we're gonna find room for all forms of criticism in some way. And I think. The medium is going going to have. I think it already has its greats. I would, like I said, I would disagree. I would say, if you if you don't think that you know Alan Steppenwolf, Todd Vanderwerf, um, Noel Murray when he was writing about TV more, now he's mostly writing about film. Scott Tobias again, I think did some great things on TV, but now is writing exclusively about film. Maureen Ryan, I think. I mean, I can rattle off probably a dozen TV critics that I think are fantastic and uh, you know worthy of being considered greats of the medium at this point. But I think you're going to have those titans emerge in, you know, the next few decades as TV criticism becomes more entrenched and becomes more what film criticism was when you saw Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael arrive. So I think this is early days, and I, I, I think critiquing it, the, the medium, as dead or dying at this point is a huge mistake. But for now, I think that's where we'll leave it. Do you have any last thoughts you want to throw out? Nope. I think we wrapped it up. I think we figured it out. Excellent. Well, that's what, what Sam and Jordan think on TV criticism for, what's it, for what it's worth. Um, with that, we want to wrap up the show. As always, I like to say, come check out the website at reviewyourname.com where you can see both Sam and I writing about a lot of TV shows on a weekly basis. Um, and you can also find my reviews of some movies that I liked more than most people and some movies that I hated as much as everybody else. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at reviewyourname. You can email us at reviewyourname.gmail.com. Um, I've, I should be saying this more, so I'm going to throw this out there as well. You're probably listening to the podcast on iTunes. If you're not, you can listen to it on iTunes. You can rate us on iTunes. Um, tell us how we're doing. Let us know. We'd like to be better. Uh, we'd like to hear what you're thinking. So get in contact with us. Good, bad, whatever. Um, with that, I will hand out the Rachel Tartus Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. Uh, this one, I think, is, is pretty easy for me. Sam, you may or may not agree. Uh, we've been tabulating all show, as we always do. And it's come out with uh, Jonathan Banks. Jonathan Banks, who's ascending in the uh, ranks of the all-time great TV guest stars at this point, hopefully. I'd like to see some great work from him on Community. He was amazing on Breaking Bad. Um, he was great on Parks and Rec when he was on there. Jonathan, come on down. Grab your trophy and small cash prize. Hang out with us for a little while. I'm sure you'll intimidate the hell out of us, but we're looking forward to it anyway. Um, so congratulations to you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening this week, as always. I have been Jordan. This has been the Review Name Podcast. And Sam, if we ride together, we ride for justice.